remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold at the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So church, this morning we're going to think about why and how we make decisions in our everyday life. Over the past week, we each have made a thousand little decisions that got us here this morning. Was there a unifying theme in all of those decisions is what I want us to look at. Was there a method of decision making that if we could recognize it, we could tune or filter to make better decisions? And if better, better for whom? And to what end? Are we able to make decisions as Christians in a Christian way? Is that a thing? Should it be a thing? So in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1, Paul is continuing a theological and practical argument that he started way back in chapter 8. As we saw last week, he's dealing with the question whether Christians can eat meat that has been sacrificed in idol temples. But as we think through our text today, I want us to see that while Paul is answering this specific question, He's also laying down some core principles that are a guide to the whole of the Christian life. Today we'll see a rubric for how Christians should make decisions throughout our lives for the good of others and for God's glory. So, imagine you're back in, I don't know, 8th grade, ninth grade, whenever you do graphing, it's all changed now. But you've got a graph, right? You've got an x-axis going left to right, and you've got a y-axis going uh, top to bottom. So a horizontal and a vertical axis. Anything on that horizontal axis has to do with, am I loving my neighbor? Anything on that vertical axis is, am I glorifying God? That's the, the picture I want us to have in our minds this morning as we think through this text. Every decision you make will plot somewhere on that graph. Paul tells us in this passage that as Jesus followers, our place is in that 
top right quadrant where we are fully loving our neighbors and we are fully glorifying God. As Christians, that's where we need to seek to make our decisions. So let's see now how Paul helps us to better make decisions. And in the meantime, as we're doing that, be more and more like Jesus in this passage. So three points this morning. Try to keep it simple. First one is the horizontal act of decision-making, and that is use your freedom to build others up. Second point is going to be we're going to look at some, uh, some case studies that Paul gives us as to how we might do that better. And then thirdly, we're going to look at that, that vertical access, and that is bringing more and more glory to God as we make decisions. So first, use your freedom to build others up, the horizontal access of decision-making. Paul begins this passage by repeating a statement that he actually made back in chapter 6, verse 12, where he was speaking to the problem of sexual immorality in the church. There Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Now here again in this passage devoted, devoted to whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, he repeats himself with one significant change. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do you see the change there? He's replaced that last phrase with not all things build up. Well, why this change? What does he mean by build up? You see, Paul is trying to refocus the conversation for us. The issue was not really whether or not to eat certain meals. Remember last week we saw that it was just meat, nothing Special about it. Ontologically, it was still meat. Protein and fat. Tasty, tasty protein and fat. So if the eating of this idle meat isn't the issue, what's the issue then? The issue is, who are you serving by the choice that you make? To eat or to abstain? When you delve into that roast, are you considering your desires only or also the needs of others? Are you free to eat of it? Paul says unequivocally, yes. Does being a follower of Jesus keep you from eating it? Paul says unequivocally, no. You are really free. But the question we must ask isn't really, are you free to do whatever it is that you might want to do? The question we must ask is, are you and your expression of that freedom doing harm to someone else? And it seems that the question here in this passage is, are you harming someone else in the church? That changed item that he added there, that, that he quoted, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. This idea of building up is a word that Paul likes to use in reference to the church. He's not concerned about building up the culture around us. He's concerned about how are we building up the culture of the church. This idea of building up He's, he's going to use later on in chapter 14 in the context of what is the place of prophecy in the place of speaking in tongues in the gathering of the church. He says there in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then again in verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. This is what Paul's all about in this letter. He hasn't gotten there yet, but he's getting to it now. Build up others in the church. So Christian, 
If you are free to choose option A or option B in a situation, the question shouldn't first be, which thing do I want the most? It should be, which thing allows me to build up my neighbor? Paul goes on, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Look around you, church. Look next to you. Look in front of you. Look behind you. Think about these people. What can you do every day to build these people up? How can you love them better? It's not just the pastor's job to do that. It's not the elder's job. It's not the deacon's job. It's not the Sunday school's teacher's job, though it is all of their jobs. It's each and every one of us. Paul is speaking to the church, the congregation here in Corinth. And through that, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and applying this to us. How can each one of us be about building our neighbor up? This isn't just a transfer of knowledge type of building up. Oh, you're deficient in your understanding of theology, so I'm going to build you up in theology. Or you're deficient in your ethics, so I'm going to help you make better ethical choices. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the whole gamut. It is our job to help build one another's up in faith towards being more like Jesus. He says, don't seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor. So how can we be doing this better? Husbands and wives, how can you make choices out of your freedom this week that seeks the good of your spouse and your children more than your own good? Stepping on my own toes here, guys. All right. But I think that is what Paul is, asking, is calling us to think here. How can we be serving one another out of our freedom, making choices to do it. Not because we have to, but because we love and want to. Children, it's really hard to, to think that you're not the center of the universe. But break out of that pattern of thinking and consider, what can you do this week at home, at school, hanging out with your friends? To not seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor. Grandparents, you get a pass. Everyone loves you. You're great. Keep it up. <laughs> Employee, what can you do this week to be an encouragement in the gospel to those you spend your days with? Just by choosing wisely the things that you say and the things that you do. Students, could you create opportunities Children and, and youth and college students, can you create opportunities this week for someone else's growth in grace and truth by the very decisions of who you choose to sit with at lunch or in study hall or what you share on social media or what you say to someone in the hallway? How can you, out of your freedom, make choices that on that horizontal axis be moving people more towards, you be showing love to others so they can be closer to knowing Jesus. So moving on to our second point, we're going to look at a couple case studies that Paul gives. If this is the case that in making decisions, specifically with how do we deal with meat sacrifice to idols, in those decisions that we're going to make, how does that love of neighbor aspect 
play into that choice. Has much wider ethical and volitional implications rather than just meat sacrificed to idols. First, he looks at meat sold in the meat markets. In Corinth and other cities where there was temple worship, it was common for there to be meat markets adjoining or nearby the temples where sacrifices were being made. Temple sacrifices were a big, messy ordeal. Think about it. The animals don't just show up dead. They have to be sacrificed in the temple. In order to get them there, they had to be alive. So where are you going to keep the animals? You've got to pin them. You've got to feed them. You've got to water them. You've got to clean up after them. And so because of all that, their noise, their smells, and their needs, you're not going to have that right in the city center where your temple is going to be. You're going to have it outside of town. But eventually, they bring them in through town, they take them into the temple, and they slaughter them. You then butchered them, cut them up into all kinds of useful pieces of meat. Where does that meat go once they've sacrificed it? Well, they take it to the meat market and sell it. It's a huge profit. So they'd cart the fresh meat to the meat market, and it couldn't be that far away because it needed to be fresh, and you didn't want entrails going through the streets of your city, right? So in all of these cities, the meat markets were right there close to, to there. And it's still common in cultures today where sacrifices are being offered. Where we used to live, right near, usually right near the oldest mosque in town, you'd have the meat market. Because when it came time to have a sacrifice holiday, there would be hundreds, thousands of animals slaughtered, and they'd have to have somewhere to take the meat. If you don't know where it is in the city, wait till the temperature's around 120 degrees, you'll find it real fast. So if you lived in Corinth in Paul's day, you know they didn't have a Walmart or a Costco to go to. If you wanted to buy your daily food because you didn't have a refrigerator to store it in, so you bought it for each day, you'd go to the open-air market. And if you needed meat, you'd go to the meat market. And when you went to that meat market and you bought meat there, there was no doubt that a large portion of the meat sold there was going to be from that idol temple that Paul told us last week not to go and participate in. So, Paul gives direct advice here regarding that meat sold in the meat markets. He says in verse 25, eat whatever, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. No caveats. Literally, here in, in translating it over, no one questioning because of the conscience. No one. You see, Paul isn't content to let the weaker conscience Christian, who we talked about last week, who we'll look at a little bit later, he's not content to let that brother or sister to stay weak. He's urging them to step out and grow into the freedom that they had in Christ. You want meat? Go buy it no matter where it originated because it's still just meat. Now, don't go to the temple and participate in sacrificing it because that would be idol worship that we know is not idol worship, but taking part in demons, as we looked at last week. But you are free to go to the meat market. On what grounds does Paul say this? Well, he grounds it by quoting from the Old Testament in Psalm 24, verse 1. He says here in verse 26, as he's quoting verse 1 there, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat it. It is a gift from God. 
the Christian. Do you recognize this for you too? Yes, you work. You do valuable things for which someone is willing to give you money in exchange for that work. You save that money and you choose to go spend it at the market or on Amazon. But do you see that even still, it is God's resources that you are buying with his resources that he's blessed you with? The earth, we're told here, and everything in it are God's. We're just users of it. There's not one thing that exists that is not given to us by the Lord. Not a single thing. Not even your intelligence, not your rugged good looks or beautifulness, your beautiful singing voice. Whatever talent you have, everything you have is a gift from God. This has broad implications as to how we view and use the resources that he gives us. Implications that we aren't going to go in today, but I want you to consider them later on. Implications of financial things and natural resources. Are we, are you, am I a good steward of the earth that God has given to us and entrusted us with to use for his glory? So Paul then turns to a second case study here. First, we saw meat sacrificed to idols that is offered or being sold in the meat markets. You're free to eat without a ping to your conscience. Go for it. Paul then turns to the second case study, though. And this time, the situation is that an unbeliever invites you to eat into his or her home. He says there in verse 27, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Here we see Paul again urging gospel growth in the weak-conscienced believer and then continued strength in the strong-conscienced believer. Notice here the parallel between verse 25 and verse 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat markets. And then here, eat whatever is set before you in the home of an unbeliever without asking where it came from. You're good to go. Eat it. But notice here that Paul anticipated that believers would still interact with unbelievers. Notice, Paul anticipated that Christians, those who follow Jesus, would have a life where they interact with those who are not yet Christians, who are not believers. So while it's not the main point of this passage, don't let this escape from view that Christians must be willing to, and able to interact with non-Christians. Even in social environments. It is so easy to want to ghettoize our social lives so that we're only ever around other Christians. But as we'll see Paul say later in our passage, our goal is that they, unbelievers, might be saved. And we can't live and speak a gospel that they can believe if they never see or interact with us. So how are you going to live out the gospel in front of unbelievers this week? At work, at school, in your neighborhood, at the stoplight, in your home? Well, starting in verse 28, Paul gives us 
an exception to his argument that you may eat whatever is put before you. While you're eating at this unbeliever's home and they put food on the table, you should eat it. But, he says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So the picture here is that you're about to dig into this meal and it seems that there may be another believer there because Paul here is using, though we can't see it in English because English is a broken language, it's a plural you, not a singular you here when he's talking to them. If someone puts before you meat and if someone puts before you plural or someone tells you that this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat, he says. It's likely that multiple church members would have been at this meal, it seems. And so one of those believers is one of those weak, conscious type. And they say to you that this meat is idol-sacrificed meat. So Paul says it's best to back off and not partake of the meat. But why, Paul? I thought you said we were free. But remember, that horizontal axis of decision-making stated above. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. You have a choice to make in that instance. Eat the idol sacrifice meat or not eat the idol sacrifice meat. So use your freedom. Informed by your love of your neighbor and choose not to eat it. It is a choice. But that decision-making rubric tells us how we are to make that choice. Why? Because that weak, conscious brother or sister who brought the fact up to you isn't ready for that yet. They are still too tied to what that meat represents of their old life. So though all things are lawful, in this case, this would not be helpful and it would not build them up. But then Paul gives another clarifying statement in verse 29. He says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. If you have no scruples regarding the meat having been sacrificed to these false gods in these temples, then you have no conscience problem here at all. It's just meat. It's the one who felt like they needed to tell you. That's whose conscience and scruples you are to concern yourself with. But then Paul gets a little muddy here, guys. He asks two rhetorical questions in verse, the last half of verse 29 and verse 30. First, he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Then, he says, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul here is drawing to a close his argument by inserting himself in the situation. Did you notice the change of pronoun there? From second person plural you to first person singular. I. He's saying, let's say I did go to that unbeliever's house and I was told by one of you that that meat was from the temple and I then ate it anyway. What would that do? How would that go? Should I be giving thanks to God for the food all the while my brother thinks I'm somehow taking part in idol worship? Or that at least I'm okay with that system of idol worship? Wouldn't it be better, Paul says, to just abstain? It's a choice. 
Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be a better choice to just abstain then? As commentator Anthony Thistleton noted, Paul here replies to the strong. If it is up to you to choose whether to use your freedom, you might as well choose what does least harm and show love and respect for the other. You are not thereby compromising your freedom by entering into the bondage of the other's scruples. Quite the reverse, you are using your freedom to help the other and serve the gospel. And then he goes on to say, at one level the Christian is free. It is not other people's judgments as such which should determine one's own. On the other hand, always to ask about the impact of effect or effect of these things on the conscience of the other must play a part in the believer's decisions about how the freedom which God has granted is to be constructively used. We are free, and in our freedom we make choices. How are you going to choose? How are you choosing to use your freedom found in Christ in the gospel? Maybe for you, it isn't meat sacrificed in idol temples. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not the case for you guys. Or maybe one day, the Lord leads you to a land where sacrifices are offered. Maybe you're in a majority Muslim background country, and they have their sacrifice feast where they celebrate Ishmael being offered by Abraham, and they sacrifice that lamb, that sheep, that goat, whatever it is they're doing. And they call to you say, hey, come here. You want to take part in this? What do you do? Or in that same culture, your neighbor has just sacrificed and brings over a big roast to you and says, here you go. It's from our sacrifice. Do you take it and eat it? Or, let's say that's not going to be an issue for you. Let's pivot to another issue that you may run into. What kind of music are you listening to, strong, conscienced Christians? Maybe you're not affected by listening to Zeppelin or Skinner, Garth or Cash, Foo Fighters, Snoop Dogg, Tay-Tay. But have you considered that maybe there are brothers and sisters for whom that music is too much tied to their former manner of life before they knew Jesus? And that for them, when you listen to it, they are tempted to have those same thoughts and patterns of life enter back into their life? You're free, but could you use your freedom to abstain? Or movies and books. Some of us have strong constitutions when it comes to what we watch. But have you considered that your use of your freedom may be causing others to lose sight of Jesus and become enamored with the things that aren't help, helpful or healthy for them? I'm not saying do or don't here, guys. I'm just asking the question. Have you considered how your actions are affecting others? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So with that, we're going to move into our third and final point. We've looked at the horizontal axis, make decisions that build up others in love. We've looked at a couple of case studies of how that might be put into action. And now we're going to look at that vertical axis I mentioned earlier. How does the decision we make bring more glory to God? 
Let's look at the vertical axis of decision-making. Paul tells us, in all things, we must seek to glorify God. Paul's overall conclusion to his argument that goes all the way back to chapter 8 is found here in chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul here is zooming out his argument paradigm from focusing just on meat sacrifice to idols to whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And in doing so, he brings us back to consider the greatest commandment. Earlier, we were looking, really kind of focused in on the second greatest commandment, to love others as yourself. And now we're looking at that greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Christian, how should you make decisions that you make every day? In order to better see our decisions plotted out on that graph, Paul is going to give us a few filters to tune in, to better see what's going on so that we can make better decisions. We see the first filter here in verse 31. Does my decision bring God glory? He says, do all things for God's glory. Think of the first question of the catechism. What is man's chief end? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the main purpose you have in life. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you're doing anything else above that, you're not glorifying God. And you're not enjoying him forever. That's not just a vague life principle, though, which we tend to think of it as. That gets down into the very decisions we make at every point throughout the day. Paul says here, it goes down to those very decisions. We're not to turn on a life autopilot and just let our brainstem make decisions for us. We need to think about others and we need to consider how the decisions and choices we are going to make bring God glory or distract from his glory. So that's filter number one. Does it bring God glory? Filter number two, Paul goes on to touch again on that horizontal axis as the second decision-making filter. Does it offend or harm others? He says there in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Notice it's not just other Christians in view here, though they are included. Also notice that he's not saying change the message or the implications of the gospel in attempting to give no offense to others. Instead, he's saying that because you are free to do many things, if your choice is going to cause a Jew to be offended, example, eating bacon in front of them, then choose in freedom to not do that. If your choice is going to cause a brother who was a former idol worshiper to be offended, example, eating meat that came from the temple, that you know about and he knows about, then out of freedom, choose not to do that. Your very choice to do so, what? Brings God glory. And it shows love for your neighbor. Paul then goes further to clarify how he puts this into practice. He says there in verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that 
they may be saved. So here's a third filter to employ when we're making decisions throughout the week. Does my choice lead to people hearing and understanding the gospel of Jesus better? Does my choice lead people to hear, people hearing and understanding the gospel of Jesus better? Or would my choice hide the gospel from them? Murk it up a little bit. He's not talking about making decisions so that non-believers would immediately fall to the ground and pray a sinner's prayer or go sit down and open a chick track and, and, and believe. He's talking about the overall direction of their life. He's talking about the not yet a believer when they are brought to a place by conviction or situation that they then ask the question, is the gospel of Jesus true? Will your present or past actions as a believer help them to see God's glory and understand their need for Jesus better? Or will they be convinced that Jesus must not be that great because how his followers, you, are living in the world? On the big board of Plinko that is our lives, which direction are you sending them as they rattle down the board? Towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Towards the gospel or away from the gospel? Paul then concludes this passage in verse 1 of chapter 11. Yes, that's weird. You understand that verse numbers and chapter numbers are not original to the text. At some point, someone decided, we're going to end chapter here and begin the next chapter. It doesn't go that way. This is the end of Paul's previous argument. He tells us, if you want to know how to live, you need an example to follow. Specifically there, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the fourth filter of decision-making. Will this decision bring me to be more like Jesus when I make it? Ultimately, this is what we need to be like Jesus. This is our goal in life. Once the Holy Spirit has saved us, His goal is to get us to chip away all the atom off of us so that we're like Jesus. This is our goal. But you've never been in the same room as Jesus. You've never interacted with him in person. So how can you imitate him? Well, Paul had met him. Paul had learned about him from others. His friend Luke did all the research, talked to all the people. Paul learned about Jesus from that. So if you want to follow and be like Jesus, imitate Paul, he says, as he is seeking to imitate Jesus. This is one of the greatest benefits of a church, guys. We can come here week in and week out to be around and dwell with others who have known Jesus much longer and much deeper than we have. We can learn from them. Their life experiences can be hard-won battles that can be warnings and barriers to keep us from going down the roads that they went down and that are unhelpful. Young people, you need to cherish these older saints that are in our church. 
Don't fall into the world's way of thinking that unless someone is your age, they're out of touch and they just don't get it. And I say that now as someone who is probably considered out of touch and I just don't get it by all you younger people. It's not lost on me. True, they may not know how to work an iPhone. They may think TikTok is the sound that their non-digital wall clock makes. But they have a wealth of spiritual knowledge and experience that YouTube can't give you. They can help you follow Jesus better. But in the end, however you get to him, the goal is to follow Jesus. One way that we get to do that is through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then question two of the catechism elucidates how we do that. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. As one pastor noted, the question we need to be asking isn't WWJD, it's WDJD. What did Jesus do? You don't have to imagine, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? Look to see what he did. Learn from it. Memorize it. Know it. Live it. How did he glorify God and love others in his actions and decisions? He did it perfectly. He was like at the top very point of glorifying God and loving others in every moment of his life. So what can we learn from him? We need to know that. And in order to know, we have to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as Paul would later tell the Colossians. So in conclusion, do you know this Jesus that Paul points us to? Do you know that he offers a hope that no other person or thing does? Idols aren't real, he's argued. There are no gods to be worshipped in temples. Your stuff can't give you hope or direction in life. If you're looking for hope and direction, there's only one person who, out of love, lived an example of a self-effacing life, seeking to serve and love and putting aside his desires so that you might know him. He calls to you right now. Through his word, he calls to you to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He calls you to come to him so that he can give you rest. Aren't you tired of trying to find rest in a handheld device, thinking that somehow that's going to make your life better? Aren't you tired of trying to feel your way through life? Am I doing it right? Did I say that right? Do they like me? Am I accepted? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Paul reminds us here, ultimately, it is only Jesus that can give that direction and hope. Be an imitator of Christ today. Well, church, as we prepare now to take this supper, it's the Lord's Supper. Are there ways that you can be using your life and decisions to reach more with the gospel? I think it's a fair question coming out of this passage. Are there ways that you can be an encouragement to a weaker brother or sister by, out of your freedom, making choices that would do them good? Or are there areas where you need to grow in your faith 
and strength. Step away from that old way of life that you once lived. Consider as we gather to take this meal as a united body in Christ, how the members of this church, the members of his body, can help you do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We are grateful to you that you have not left us to feel our way through life, but you've given us an example, your son Jesus, that we might know how to live. Help us to have the strength through your spirit to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.